So I want to share this sutta with you today. And you may have heard this story before. I know I have many times, but I really paid attention to the teaching that the Buddha gives here. And I thought it would be nice to talk about it with you all. Um, this is the discourse to Megia. And it, it's, uh, it appears in a couple of places in the canon, but the one I'm looking at is in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the Book of Nines, number three. And the way the story is, um, the Buddha and Megia, Megia is the Buddha's attendant at this time, and they're living in a place called Kalika, on the Kalika mountain. And Megia goes out to get alms, and on his way back, he sees this beautiful mango grove that he thinks would be a really nice place to meditate. And when he gets back and he uh, eats his meal, he talks to the Buddha about it, and he asks for permission to go to meditate there for the day. And the Buddha says, well, uh, we're alone here. Let's wait until another monk comes. And, and then Megia asks again, he says, you know, it's all fine and good for you because you're enlightened, but I'm not enlightened yet. And I really want to go to this grove and meditate. The Buddha says again, no, just let's wait until another monk comes. And then Megia says, but I really want to go to the mango grove because I am not enlightened yet and I want to strive. And then the Buddha says, well, if you're talking about striving, you know, just, just go ahead. You know, um, you get the feeling uh, Megia is not really listening. <laughs> um, and it's not clear to me exactly at, at this point why the Buddha wanted another monk to be there. But Megia goes to the mango grove, and then when he starts, when he tries to meditate, like all day long, he's just his mind is filled with um, they call it calls here harmful, unwholesome thoughts, thoughts of lust, thoughts of aversion, and thoughts of cruelty, and he's just kind of like man. I ordained, became a monk out of faith. Why am I being assaulted by these unwholesome thoughts? And so at the end of the day, he goes back to the Buddha, he tells the Buddha all about it. And then the Buddha gives him this teaching. He says, when mental liberation has not fully ripened, there are five things which are conducive to that full, full ripening. So in other words, we're not yet enlightened. There are five things that can help us get enlightened. He says, when a monk has good spiritual friends, good spiritual companions, good spiritual associates, and their mind is not yet liberated or fully ripened, this is the first thing that's conducive to that full ripening. And the second thing is that a monk is virtuous, self-restrained in accordance with the monastic rules. 
his consummate in behavior and conduct, seeing even minor transgressions as dangerous, committed to the training, committed to training himself in the precepts. Another translation is keeping the rules that you've said you're keeping. By the way, this translation is by Bhante Sudasso. I don't often use his translations, but I really like the, his version of this sutta. Um, and so you can find his, his translation is also on Sutta Central. The third one that the Buddha gives is, and this is the one I'm probably going to put the most emphasis on today, is that there are conversations which are supportive of developing humility and helpful for opening one's mind. Such as conversations about having minimal wishes, about contentment, about seclusion, about non-involvement, about arousing energy, about morality, about concentration, about wisdom, about liberation, and about the knowledge and vision of liberation. And whenever one wishes, one can easily and without difficulty have such conversations. That was the third thing. Is think about our conversations as an aid to awakening. The fourth one, the Buddha said, is that a person makes an effort to discard unwholesome things and take up wholesome things. They're steadfast, powerful, and unrelenting regarding wholesome things. And when that, so this is the fourth thing to help the ripening of the mental liberation. And the fifth one, he said, is when a person is wise, endowed with the wisdom that knows arising and vanishing, that leads to noble breakthrough and to complete elimination of suffering. So it's really the, the Buddha says more about this in, later in the discourse. It's really the seeing of impermanence and understanding that everything that arises ceases. So those are the five. And then the Buddha goes on to say that when a person has good spiritual friends, good spiritual companions, and good associates, he will be restrained in accordance with the monastic rules. He will be virtuous, etc. And, and he actually goes through the other, the other ones as well. It can be expected that this person with good friends, spiritual companions, they'll have these supportive conversations for developing humility and opening one's mind. And they'll also make an effort to discard the unwholesome and develop the wholesome. And in each case, it's like because of having these good spiritual friends, having good spiritual friends, one can expect that this person will be a wise, endowed with the wisdom that knows arising and vanishing and leads to a noble breakthrough to the complete elimination of suffering. So, you know, we've talked quite a bit about that 
you know, like the importance of developing the wholesome and um, eliminating the unwholesome, purifying the mind and, you know, virtue, the importance of virtue. Um, and of course, having spiritual friends and then coming to that realization of everything arising ceases. But I was really interested in this, especially the way this is translated about these conversations that help us develop humility and open the mind. And the place that humility has in our process of awakening. And in particular, just, um, you know, just to reflect on where, where we might, even though we, we want to be humble, where we might not be without realizing it. I think this is an useful and then it's so helpful to have conversations with others because they can see our blind spots better than we can that's why they're blind spots <laughs> and that can really be helpful so living in community can be helpful or just having community having those good friends and so the example i want to use is related to a book i've been reading um, Olivia sent me this book. I don't know if you can see the title. Nice Racism. It's by Robin D'Angelo. She also wrote uh, White Fragility. And I'm almost finished with the book. And it's really, really interesting. It's, it's um, really written for people like me, white progressive, someone who doesn't want to be racist, <laughs> um, maybe a person who believes that they're not racist, but actually not able to see all the ways, but certainly her uh, premises, we just, we don't see all the ways that we're complicit in a system that continues to segregate and oppress. And, you know, so this has been really interesting for me. And I'm really um, loving the way that it's like having the conversation already, let alone the conversations I've been having with the people around me about it, about the kinds of things that I just haven't had the um, pressure to think about, even though I want to know. And the book is so full of um, examples of the resistance nice people have against being told that they're doing things that are perpetuating white supremacy. And so it's, it's like, and then all that resistance, that, that's where the need for humility comes in. You know, it's like when we don't want to hear, regardless of what the context is or the subject matter, I'm using this one. This is, this is important to me. This is an area I know 
my conditioning, um, really, I really need this <laughs> in my, in my own, um, kind of development, but regardless of the context, if someone tells us we're not, um, we're showing up in a certain way that we don't believe in, believe we are, or we don't want to be, there can be so much resistance to hearing it, you know, not really take it in. Um, and even Magia, you know, he didn't want to take in what the Buddha was saying. He didn't want to, you know, say, okay, let's wait till someone else comes and see what that means. You know, let's, let's find out what that means and why, um, why does the Buddha want me to do this? I mean, talk about a good spiritual friend. I mean, if you're not going to listen to the Buddha, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, I mean, Mekia got the, the training out of it anyway. It's not like it's so horrible or anything. But the, but the point is, as we try to discover where our blind spots are, we really want to know what it is that's holding our mind back from awakening. There needs to be a willingness to take in um, those things we really don't want to hear. The fact that we don't want to hear them is something that should be a clue, should be a, a flag that says, listen, listen more closely, listen more closely than we would otherwise. And so um, it's just, you know, one might think, well, how much does this have to do with awakening? Those conversations the Buddha mentioned didn't mention this one. <laughs> Although the Buddha talked quite a bit about um, discrimination, he was focused on caste because that's what the way it was happening in his world. It's a perpetual problem, no matter what it is, you know, that we, um, what our context is, to want to elevate and diminish. And when I, you know, one of the many ways that people resist taking this in and understanding, you know, like, well, I'm actually causing harm, even though I don't want to be in certain ways and thinking, you know, especially even when thinking, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, overtly racist, you know, I'm like, you know, like really, this is the idea, a nice person who wants people to do well, no matter what, right? But then it's still, we still live in a world, in an environment where there's so much aggression and particularly against, um, particularly in, against African-Americans here in this country. So the other day, um, a phone got left in somebody's car and 
then we had to find a way to get it back to its owner. And as it happened, this friend of a friend was going to be coming past the meditation center and she could drop it off. She's doing us a favor. And the meditation center is in a very nice area in Silicon Valley and there's not uh, much crime as far as I know or anything. But she said, I don't want to drop it off after dark. She's African-American and she said she would be afraid of getting shot. And this is something that I never have to think of. Not here anyway. And it breaks my heart. And anybody should have to think about that. And then it, it, it just, it's clear to me that there's more that I need to do to understand my own um, complicitness, complicity. <laughs> I don't know what that word is. <laughs> but to really understand. So the next book Olivia is going to send me is How to Become Anti-Racist. So I'll get more, more, more information. But the, the point I want to really bring home is the importance for our minds to open, for our humility to develop, is to be interested in when we feel that resistance to hearing about what we are doing or how we are thinking or how we are showing up or, you know, it's like those spiritual friends and, and asking for feedback and asking for that reflection. That is so important that we can have those conversations and, you know, it's easy to have a conversation with our friends when everybody agrees on things and we're, you know, like really, um, you know, restating what we all know and, and we all agree upon. The harder conversations with our good friends are the ones where we're really shining a light on the dark corners of our minds. The ones that we might not even be willing to acknowledge. So it's important, I think, to reflect on how do I um, increase the opportunities to have those conversations. And of course, the conversations about, you know, those things that the Buddha listed are important. Conversations about... Minimal wishes, contentment, seclusion, non-involvement. In other words, how do I let go of those things I'm clinging to, those things I want to um, 
get distracted by, about morality, bringing up energy, bringing stillness to the mind, wisdom, liberation. So, um, you know, this is in the book of nines and we just heard about five things. So of course there's gonna be four more of something here. <laughs> and the Buddha says, once you're established in these five things, there are four additional things to cultivate. Non-beauty should be developed for discarding of lust. So of course, Maggie was having that problem, having lustful thoughts. So the Buddha's like, focus on what's not beautiful in it. And then loving kindness should be developed for discarding aversion. Another area where we can start to discover some of our blind spots. What do we have aversion to? And can I really look at that? You know, well, maybe I'll say that later. And then he said, mindfulness of breathing should be developed for the sev severing of thought. So if we're having trouble in our meditation with the mind not going, becoming still, the Buddha said, mindfulness of breathing is the way to remedy that. But of course, we really have to develop these things in order to get the benefit. And recognition of impermanence should be developed for completely uprooting the conceit of self-existence. Megia, one who recognizes impermanence, establishes the recognition of not-self. One who recognizes not-self reaches the complete uprooting of the conceit of self-existence, immediately visible nibbana. I hope you have a bunch of questions. <laughs> I don't know if you do, um, you know, bringing up nice racism and um, may not be the topic you wanted to hear about today, <laughs> but then that probably leads to a good question of why not? I don't know, just, <laughs> Serena? I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak a little on the cultivation of humility, which seems to be the big key here. And I, it's really excellent, I'm hearing this about the subtleties that are our blind spots. Um, I've been aware, having been born in a um, Hispanic East Oakland neighborhood, going to school, they're going to church in a Black Oakland neighborhood and now living in a, predominantly Hispanic and Native American neighborhood. So I, I see some and, and beginning to see some now being even, you know, a white person with now white hair and the discrimination against elderly. One begins to see how pervasive this is in our conditioning. But, but especially too, I see how pervasive it is just in every relationship we have with our partners. You know, we have these blind spots and 
We don't want to hear these things that are our blind spots. So maybe just a little bit more for me about would be helpful about really cultivating humility. Thank you, Serena. When we feel resentful or angry, um, you know, that kind of feeling like I should not be treated this way. Um, and I'm not talking about abuse. I mean, we shouldn't be treated that way. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's the real um, kind of boundary that's appropriate. And then there's just feeling like, um, it's just the ego getting, you know, exposed touched when that feeling's there then we we practice letting go of it we practice really letting go of it so that there's no resistance um, we, we we make the distinction based on what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, not on what I find offensive, what's actually blameworthy and not just something I don't like because I feel I take offense to that. If I'm gonna take offense to something, it's actually um, not abusive, not unwholesome, it's just, Kind of like I should be treated better than that in a certain way, or I, I'm I'm above. If I think I'm above you, I've got some real humility work to do. Now, oddly enough, if I think I'm below you, I also have to do that. It's the ego. It's the sense of self and the freedom. What we feel when we do let go is a sense of safety and freedom. It's like when we're on that pedestal, that's when we're in danger of getting knocked off. And, and it really, um, it's really interesting, like uh, being a bhikkhuni or bhikkhu, you know, because there's a benefit to people who have faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha to um revere the robe but the person wearing the robe has to understand that that's not personal and if they if they get confused about that they suffer and so this is this is the thing we we have to be sure we understand and then we get closer and closer to not self and, and so, you know, when we're really humble and we're, we're not um, offended, uh, we, we, we stand on, we're really on solid ground. And, and so 
I think the first thing is to notice and, and we can notice it just like so many else, other things through the dukkha that we feel. And then, and then looking. And I think really it does help to look at, um, you know, watch these things in other people too. Cause a lot of times we can see it in someone else. We can see someone else's ego showing up and then we and then instead of thinking about them turn and ask where do i do that what is that like when i'm doing it yeah thank you serena hannah thank you aya what was coming up for me when I was hearing you read and discuss the sutta was intention a lot in regards to this humility concept and practice and how I, especially coming from recovery and codependency, that is something that I'm trying to build awareness on daily is like, what is my intention in doing this? And I'm so glad that you brought up this book, Nice Racism. I'm definitely going to get it because being a codependent, like everything I did, I thought it, I was doing it because I was nice and because I cared about people. And now building awareness on intention, like I recognize a lot of what I did, although it was nice, was because I didn't want people to be in pain and I wanted to try and take it away and fix it or, you know, make them feel better instead of just holding space for them and I'm recognizing that it's not my job or my responsibility to take people's pain away, but just to compassionately hold space for them. And especially for things like um, that I did not grow up experiencing or experiencing it just differently. I've learned that saying things like, can you tell me what that's like for you? keeps me in that humility because I'm not trying to fix it and I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to say oh I could understand what that's like because I have no idea you know I I have no idea like the example you gave like even if I was in fear for something like that it would not be the same yeah it wouldn't and I was also reminded by um something that a teacher that I went on retreat with last year said she said Uh, are you really unsafe or is it just not your preference? And that, that resonated because of when I heard you say, um, you know, am I offended just because I don't like it? And that's what brought like what she said, because it does really go back to this idea of safety within the self, like, oh, that person hurt my feelings. Like I took it personally. And a lot of times for me, like taking things personally is like, because a part of me doesn't feel safe and just recognizing like, well, it's just really not my preference, but Mm -hmm. I am safe. Mm -hmm. And so just, yeah, intention and then recognizing that the impersonal nature of it. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think for a long time I was not clear um, 
about the difference between, you know, what, well, what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, what's appropriate um, to be, what do I want to say, to walk away from and, and, and those things that really don't, um, it's, it's really what you're saying, Hannah, it's that distinction, like, um, like being in a relationship that has a lot of abuse in it and not recognizing that there, there is an appropriate boundary. That is, that is unacceptable. Move away from what's unwholesome. But being careful to know that difference of it's, you know, it, it's um, to, to really understand where it's actually abusive and where it's actually just what makes me feel important or whatever, or, you know, preference. So I think that's a really important distinction. Yeah, Holly? I will share with you an experience from my past that I have found um, sad and uh, disturbing and painful. So I was working um, for in a year-long female maintenance, tra maintenance training program at Santa Rosa Community Hospital in the uh, late 70s. And I was one of two women there, and there were about eight men in the program. And the other woman was a black woman named Diane. She went by Ayande, Diane backwards. And we charmed a lot and had a good time. And it was a great program for me. It was not a great program for Diane or Yande. She spent almost the whole year feeding uh, surgery remnants, body parts, and stuff into the incinerator. In the summer in Santa Rosa, uh, my assignments were to work with the wonderful locksmith and to do plumbing and pipe fitting. And I'd stop by and visit her every day several times we take breaks together by the incinerator where she was stuffing stuff into this huge incinerator and i i never said let me take a turn at that mm. and of course it were assignments or i could have said something to the to our boss who was a man who really went to bat for us to get equal pay for equal rights which he did uh, because we had men and women and their the pay was about we were getting about two-thirds of what the men were getting, and he righted that. So anyway, I just think about those times with Diane and the dis difference in what I was given in my experience because I was white, and what Diane was given was what a ripoff for her. Yeah. It's really wrong. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Holly. Yesterday, uh, our community was invited for a meal at a, um, a woman's house. We know a, a Sri Lankan lady, and um, she had quite a few of her friends over, and we know most of them. 
And the Sri Lankans have beautiful, such beautiful faith uh, in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and um, and they have customs that, you know, like we, we're a kind of a funny monastery because we're Westerners sort of <laughs> a little mix. And we're, we're, our training is mostly in the Thai tradition and then our ordination is from the Sri Lankan tradition. And we kind of like, you know, um, are connected with both. And when at, at our monastery, we don't do the kind of Buddha puja, putting the, the trays of food on the shrine and all of that uh, tr kind of uh, traditional cultural kinds of things. And, um, but this friend, this lady asked if that was okay. And I said, sure. I mean, we're at her house. They should do the customs as they, as they wish. And we're happy to participate and bless that. And, um, and then the style uh, for how they serve the monastics is that first the monastics eat and all of the lay people just are there serving the monastics. They come around with food umpteen times to try to give you more. And it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's, their hearts are so beautiful. And um, so we're at this um, townhouse and there's a table and it's kind of a high table with high chairs, you know how, and um, the three of us nuns are sitting there being served. Everybody else is waiting to eat. And then when that's finished, we move into the living room area and the, all the lay, the lay people, all women in this case, are going to eat the meal. And there are, I don't know, eight or 10 Sri Lankan, yeah, Sri Lankan women yeah. and, and two women who aren't Sri Lankan. <clears throat> I would say white. I don't know if they would call themselves white or not, but they're invited to sit at the table and they sit, they're sitting at the table eating and all of the Sri Lankans are like sitting on the floor eating or hovered over a counter. And I know this is probably because they're kind of guests. They're not like, you know, it's, it, and, and they want to, you know, um, have them sit down and at the table. But the visual was striking, given my <laughs> focus these days a little bit on this, you know, like how, how much racism has shaped my own life and perceptions as a white person and how much I want to discover and uncover that and not contribute to that discrimination anymore. And just, just to kind of get that image um, and, and know that, you know, nothing harmful is going on or is it? Is it that the colonizers of the colonized are just falling into their roles and perpetuating them? And, you know, I look forward to learning what I might be able to say or do, not maybe in that situation, but in whatever situation that would be helpful and not harmful. Um, and just opening the mind. Mm -hmm. developing humility.
Did you want to say anything more, Holly? I really appreciated your example. Thank you. Joyce? Yeah, thank you for raising this topic. It's really important, I think, in our Buddhist communities. I grew up in Chicago, which is extremely segregated, at least when I was growing up. Um, and I remember reading um, Robin D'Angelo's book, and I remember cringing reading about the microaggressions and how easy it is for our typical thinking process to lead us to that place of doing something that's so deeply insulting or demeaning to another person. Yeah. yeah, I think we white people have a ways to go. But the thing I wanted to ask you about is, are you aware of East Bay Meditation Center mm -hmm. in Oakland? Yeah, yeah, I am aware. I was very, very fortunate to... Um, learn about the progress toward actually founding that. So I was there before they were founded uh -huh. and I was working behind the scenes and doing, um, you know, volunteer work of various kinds. And it is, and I keep on supporting it financially and also with my volunteer work for over 10 years. Um, it's, it's just thriving. And tomorrow they're having their opening ceremony for the new, site and wow. i just wanted to make you aware of this book um it's by one of the first um teachers there their teaching staff it's called awakening together the spiritual practice of inclusivity and community and it's by larry yang uh -huh. and it's a very 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 powerful book if you I don't know you would you probably wouldn't want to take on anything like this but they've really emphasized you know, training people of color to teach, teach the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. And they're springing up all over. And Spirit Rock has done a lot of work also. And IMS is starting to be affected by it as well. Mm -hmm. So I just feel that there is hope for the future that things are are changing. Yeah. So Larry's book just has tremendous um, accolades. And it, I think it's well worth just looking into this book. And that was, there was something else. Oh, what was it? Oh, no. Okay, I have to let it go. Something I just spaced out. But um, but thank you for bringing this up. I think it's really important. Well, if it comes back, you raise your hand. Okay, Joyce. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I have known about um, East Bay Meditation Center. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that... You know, that has been happening. Um, yeah, it's, it's really important work. Neil? Um, yeah, this is, um, I'm not really sure how I want to say this because I feel, well, all right. Um, I want, so for me, what I, what keeps coming up for me is 
as a white person who grew up in middle-class suburban Long Island, New York, where everyone other than maybe German, Irish, and Italian, you know, there was really no um, differences. Um, and what I keep encountering on this matter is years, a lifetime of conditioning that um, I would love to be able to shake, but it just keeps coming up. Um, I see someone who is other from me in any way, and that's the first thing I see. Yeah. And, you know, and then I guess I feel like, you know, there's some progress in my mind that I'm able to immediately realize that that's happening. But then, you know, it becomes this weird sort of uncomfortableness, like, how do I interact with someone while this is sort of nagging away in the background mm -hmm. without giving away that it's nagging away in the background? And, all you know, I'm not really sure where I want to go with this, but I guess I, what I want to ask is, how do you, can you suggest ways to work with that? Um, I think that's exactly what I'm trying to do myself. You know, I did. So this Robin D'Angelo is a white woman and she's talking to white and she's progressive. I think she said, you know, and she's talking to people like her. The next book on how to develop, how to become anti-racist because the, one of the, you know, important conclusions that Robin D'Angelo is making here is that it's not enough to be not to be non-racist. We have to be anti-racist because we can't get past that whole lifetime of conditioning without really understanding what it's like to take an active um, approach and and to be really clear about what you know and how do you get clear about what's helpful and what's harmful it's only by talking to the people who are experiencing the microaggressions and you know and so the next book on how to become an anti-racist is written by um, a person of color so we would get it from people you know and and robin says really interesting things like if you you know, have a, an equity group in your organization and you want to have this person of color join it, pay them for their time. They're bringing expertise to this matter that you don't have. And all of this injustice that's gone on for ever, practically, um, you know, this, this needs to have, have a, an active kind of energy for the recovery. And so the answer, I think, so, so I'm going to bring this back to the Dhamma, to our path of awakening, because this is the same kind of stuff we have to apply with regard to our greed, hatred, and delusion, with regard to our closed mindedness about, you know, like my tradition's better than your tradition. I'm doing it the right way and you're not doing it the right way. 
And the Buddha warns monastics about this all over the place. You know, you, you develop your virtue and then you think you're better than somebody else because your virtue is better. You are on the wrong track. And so this is something, regardless of what the example is, we need to develop that humility. And that's, and I, and I really can appreciate your position that you're describing, I feel like I've been in the same place uh, for a long time. <coughs> and now, you know, I've had this intention for, for a few years already, because every once in a while in teaching Dhamma, I get confronted with a situation that I don't know how to handle around racism. And I need to learn how to handle it in a way that's, in a way that I'm a true ally and not just uttering platitudes or things that don't acknowledge the real issues. And yeah, to do that, I have to understand my own complicity and make some active changes. So yeah, let's take the road together then, you know, <laughs> find out what do we do with this lifetime of conditioning um, that keeps us in the dark. Um, yeah, you know, as you were talking, I was reminded of an example of the depth of the conditioning. At least I think it is. Um, uh, my, my mother's youngest sister, who's actually younger than me, um, she was in her 40s when she first got married and she married a black man. And I don't remember the context of the conversation, but at some point I kind of became aware that my mother, the only word I could think of was sort of dis, and I never thought, I mean, I didn't, I don't think my mother was ever a racist any more than I am, which is not saying much, but um, I sensed her discomfort with, with who her sister married. And I said, you know, is it because he's black? And she said, no, I don't care that he's black. It's just that he's so unattractive. And and I thought at the time I I didn't think I thought well okay all right so she just doesn't think he's attractive, but as I've thought about that over the years I've realized well, why is he unattractive to her? It's most likely because he's black, <laughs> and so you know the fact that what we can what we perceive of as beauty or even just attractiveness yeah. in the world is rooted in this difference between self and other a lot i think um and so it it all gets interwound interwoven with stuff and like just getting it all disentangled it yeah. feels like a life's work yeah I mean, I really would, I really want for my own practice and to encourage others too to really try to keep putting this in the context of Dhamma. You know, the Buddha kept talking about what really, what really I, 
signifies nobility. You know, those qualities of virtue and generosity and faith and wisdom, learning, and how all of these sort of um, characteristics are, are, are meaningless in that regard. And it's like what we're talking about is all this conditioning that focuses on characteristics. And then, you know, we have to be careful. I'm not saying there isn't um, discrimination or racism because there is. This is, this, is where we, this is where we fall into the pit of cruelty and ill will and aversion and, and harming. And we need to really, really bring that to conscious awareness and, um, and recognize that, you know, the way of working with the mind isn't just that we block things out. You don't just block out sense, sense experience. There is, um, you know, sense restraint, but the fact is we're always going to be getting something coming in through the senses. What's important is to make those distinctions about what matters and what doesn't matter and how to hold those things. And then, you know, we do need to, I hope this is making sense, <laughs> not just a ramble, <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's like, it's like there is that big work of disentangling, but maybe what we need to do is really put the lens of the Dhamma on it so that we can make progress towards awakening. And through that progress towards awakening, if we're bringing this kind of thing into clarity, we'll also be anti-racist. And, and what that means is, you know, people ask, you know, do arahants feel these things? When Ajahn Chah said to that guy who wanted him, wanted to read it, Ajahn Chah's poem, you, you may or may not have heard this, there's this man who really wanted to look at Ajahn Chah's poem because he was a poem reader and Ajahn Chah hated that stuff. It's like, well, I don't know if he hated it, but he was like not wanting to perpetuate the various things that you know, we're kind of superstitious or whatever. But anyhow, finally he let him. And the man had a big surprised look on his face. And, you have a lot of anger. And Ajahn Shah says, yeah, but I choose not to use it. And it's like, do Arahants feel these things or not? Do they feel sad or do they feel, you know, does painful feeling arise? And according to the Buddha, it rises. But it's like um, an ember a spark coming out of the fire and landing on dry land and then it, it just goes out immediately. So when those racist thoughts come into the mind, we have to know them so well that they just go out immediately and we act in the proper way. That's what I think. Cynthia? <clears throat> Yeah, this is this is sort of similar to um, Neil's comments. And I don't think I've told this story in this group before, but it was so astounding to me that I tend to tell people. Um, uh, but it's about 
recognizing the incredible strength and depth of conditioning. Am I t- yeah, conditioning. Um, a few, this was, I don't know, five, six years ago, I was getting ready to retire and I had a pretty complicated job uh, with a lot of information attached to it. And a lot of it was in my head. And I was, you know, spent a year like trying to think about the best way to pass along the information to the person coming after me. Um, and it went, and I, I was an accountant, so it was a, you know, professional job. Um, and so I, I spent, I was spending a lot of time met, you know, kind of mentally processing, you know, what should I write down and what should I make charts about and how much do I want to actually teach, you know, uh, verbally interact with the person. So what started to happen was I was having these mental conversations in my head about who was going to succeed me in my job. And, and we hadn't hired anybody yet. And I realized after a while that the person in my head that was going to take my job was always a man, mm-hmm. which was really astounding to me. Mm-hmm. And then I had, I told, I was telling my mother about this, you know, phenomenon. And she looked at me and she says, well, in what race was the person? And of, of course it was white. Like who else but a white man could take my job and do it competently. And, and I grew up in a family that was very progressive and encouraged from when I was really young to be respectful and appreciative of people from other backgrounds. So it was like, where the hell did that come from? You know, it's, it's just <laughs> so pervasive that it, that, that it could arise in that way. And it wasn't, it wasn't in my, it was certainly wasn't in my immediate conditioning. So it's like, it's just in the air. Well, yeah, it's in every aspect of our society. It's in every aspect of our life. And this is why it's so important. And this is why it's so insidious. Yeah. And, and I, I, I was raised in a super racist environment. And what I noticed later on on reflecting about it is that the men were very vocal and hated, hateful, and the women didn't say anything. And I thought, well, at least there's that. They probably, you know, and my mom, after my father died, she said, yeah, I don't understand what that is all about, you know. But in reading this book, one of the things that is just is talked about is the complicity, the way we support the, the pervasive white supremacy is through silence. I mean, the women in my family were supporting that whole package anyway, and I'm supporting it in countless ways that have to stop. And it's like, yeah, that stuff is so deeply embedded in our psyche. It's got a, it's, it's really in, in some ways fascinating and such a challenge to us to begin to truly unpack that and, and make changes because this is the same kind of radical approach we have to have with our awakening. You know, like this is a practice of unpacking all that crap 
in our conditioning, not that we have to go through it all. We have to get to the place where we see the light. Yeah. It's really, it's really, I think, profound work on the, on the, the material worldly plane and how we treat each other, which is, you know, how we treat each other is in the spiritual practice. That's ground the ground, our morality, our virtue is tied up. Our sila is tied up with all these, these kinds of things, these, this conditioning. Yeah. Thank you, Cynthia. Choice. What I forgot before was I just wanted to mention that Robin D'Angelo has quite a number of really good and lengthy talks about her first book available online. And they're very powerful and they're really directed toward people like us. And I think it'd be easier than just reading the book and just to see her in person. And she's, you know, very, very dynamic. And about this conditioning, I've really been digging into this and how feeling tone for whatever is coming up in the moment is such a clear sign of what our conditioning is. Mm -hmm. And it'd be really helpful to just pay attention to that because it changes our perceptions. I'm really seeing this in real life if I've been digging into this area. So I really appreciate your bringing up that whole topic of conditioning now that's affecting how we relate to the world. So that's it. Thank you. So when you say people like us, I'm imagining you're meaning old white ladies. No. <laughs> no, I think it's it's some of the, the people here. Well, us, yeah. Yeah, the people here in this group, and it's not all of us. And I'm really glad that this group actually has some diversity. I think it's really, really healthy to have that. Mm. Yeah, so I wasn't trying to, yeah, to okay. do that. Yeah. Just, just wanted to... I'm still so clumsy. I got a lot of work to do. If I offended anyone, please. please. I just really keep working on it and tell me how I've offended you if you if you see that because I want that feedback. If you're up for it, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Joyce. Amira. Yeah, it's sort of like what I wanted to say is connected to what just came up. So good timing. So I just wanted to start by acknowledging that this group does have quite a bit of obvious diversity and quite a bit of probably unobvious diversity in it. Some people might not appear as all the pieces that they are. And I wanted to notice that all of us who've spoke so far are white appearing at least. And I also wanted to notice that um, of the founding of KBV, which is different than, say, like a lot of organizations I've been in, it's not founded by just one white person. And I think that that's really important because I've been in quite a number of groups or agencies that have failed, that have started as all white and then try to diversify in a way that it just never, it just never works out. It's just becomes very painful, especially for the people of color who are anyway. So I just want to acknowledge that 
the three of you sitting up there are different from one another in multiple ways that I really appreciate um, as the, the foundation here. And yeah, and to say that I think that I don't know, I'm not sure about this, but like the conversation, like as a white person, I'm glad for it and I appreciate it, but it does feel like it's ending up being directed to the white people here. And I don't know what I think about that as a way, like, I think it's like more beneficial if it's like, in my experience, if it's going to be the white people really exploring together that the people of color don't have to really sit through that process and that there's a different way of coming together. So that's some ideas that I have about how to think about having these kinds of conversations in this context, in this community. And that, of course, I appreciate it being rooted in the Dharma, which is very helpful. So those are some of my thoughts. Yeah. And, yeah. Thank you, Mayor. I appreciate that, too. And I, and I also uh, seriously hope that the example is useful and not harmful. But I do want to keep bringing it back to our, we all have blind spots. We all have areas where we need to work with our ego and develop our humility. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I would I fully admit that I'm in real danger of saying unskillful things because I'm so new in this in this exploration. Mm -hmm. So I think that what's important about that in being new in the exploration, not like I'm an expert, I just want to be clear, I'm not an expert in the exploration, is um, I do think that um, because you're coming at it so beautifully, you know, from your own experience and your own sincere intention of wanting to recognize and uprooting yourself, I think that the the unfolding process of that, again, I think we want to think about whether to have that in a group that's all white. Oh, yeah. Or a group, yeah. I mean, I know. I want to make, I want to make it clear that this is not becoming a session about this. <laughs> I mean, today the example is this, but this is not the place where we're going to be exploring this. We just keep exploring the Dhamma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring okay. examples in that are effective, hopefully, for all of us. Um, you know, real um, focus on the, on the Buddhist teachings. So I guess then my last thing I might want to say, which is because I have some awkward feeling about, about the unfolding today is, is do any people of color feel comfortable or safe or like they want to also add their voice in, which might mean turning the conversation in a slightly different way than what it's like as white people learning about it. And that might be weird or not. Anyway, I just want to bring that in. And I think I've said enough now. So, Thanks, Mayor. There. Yeah. Appreciate Joyce? Hi. Thanks so much. It's um, This session has been so helpful because I've been grappling a lot with appropriate and inappropriate boundaries. And if I set a boundary, is it I set it because I have too much ego and my feelings were hurt? And so this has all been clarifying and helpful in that way. Um, what I'm wondering is your thoughts on, um, and again, I'm treading on, on 
certain ground myself here, clearly. Uh, I haven't exported a lot and I come from, you know, a very um, white middle class background that uh, that there has been doors of opportunity have always opened and I haven't had obstructions. So I'm, a pre, you know, I'm thankful for that. But, and I know that a criticism of Robin D'Angelo's work and I'm wondering your thoughts on this has been that it's almost, you know, and again, I don't want to hurt people's feelings and I don't want to get beyond, over my head with this, but it's almost like she's perpetuating racism by making this dichotomy between the bad white people and the victimized black people. Um, and, you know, and I'm wondering, is there a place, and maybe there isn't in our society yet, because there's been such a long history of segregation you know, of racism against African Americans. But where is the place for not being anti non-racist or anti-racist, but being beyond racism? Um that you know, okay, maybe so much too soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean this one book, I certainly didn't see the way the criticism described. Um, I think it's really up to us to try to understand where she's coming from uh, for the benefit of shifting our, our society in a good direction. And I think the only, the only way I as a white person would take it like I'm being somehow pitted against is, is again, through my own ego and, and not wanting to hear the reality that this is painting a picture of some aspect of my experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really, I really think taking this, um, her experience and her, uh, good intention, um, in and in a, in the proper way can help us, I like I like that book title of you know awakening together mm-hmm. can um, so I I think it's very important to take in what we hear and really work through it inside and and look at ourselves um, regardless of you know what example we're talking about uh, trying to bring the kindness the compassion the inclusivity in you know when I think about that friend of a friend who came by in the morning instead of in the evening yeah um And felt unsafe here for what? Something so innocent as the color of a skin. Right. So yeah. innocent. And if we're judging people based on what's so innocent, we got to take a look at that. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you. Holly. I do feel provoked to speak briefly again. 
I'm taken by your suggestion that we look at it from a Dhamma perspective. And boy, I am not sure how to do that. Mm -hmm. I really don't know. So I go, well, okay, so there's the Four Noble Truths. There's Dukkha. Well, yeah, that's for sure. And does it cease inside our cycles? Yes, but it seems to go on and on for racism. And then I look at the Brahma Viharas and I go, okay, so loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, certainly equanimity is a big one there. I really don't know how to place it that way, place the topic of my inherent Behavior. I think what I'm I think what I'm inviting, hoping to encourage and inspire is a deeper look at what's going on in our heart. It's not just about a Dhamma framework. It's about being really willing to drop our pretenses drop our facade, drop our defenses, um, really willing to let go of self. And then, you know, to the degree we can, and then take a look at the world around us. You know, it's, 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 um, and taking responsibility for my own conditioning, taking responsibility for how I let myself continue to operate out of that conditioning unexamined. So it's, you know, the Buddha, all these tools that Buddha's given us, it's like how to know the mind. We, we can take this example in, in the way we experience it in the world and then use these tools to know our own mind. But we have to be willing to really be honest super honest i don't know is that helping anything <laughs> i don't know if that adds, adds any support to how to do it it's like be with you know like maybe reading a book like this and seeing where our own defensiveness comes up you know and then and then yes, the dhamma to understand deeply yes i think all those things feel true i think Myara's uh, comment about all us white folks talking about difficulties yeah. with racism kind of makes my skin crawl. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know any other way to say it. Um, very insular, useless, mm -hmm. um, effective views. All those challenging concepts come up for me. Uh, so it's a very, I mean, really difficult to know how to progress as a person uh given the realities of racism in and around me so that's all okay so i think i'm um whether it's racism sexism um casteism casteism thank you all of it it's like We get this opportunity to go deeper. I feel like the the order in which I'm reading the this this book and the next one about, you know, first coming from a place of of looking at my own conditioning and my own 
behavior, <coughs> excuse me, behaviors in the light of the Dhamma. And then, and then start listening to others who are having a different experience in this world than I've had. And not, not in a way that I'm going to put, you know, there's no, I'm not giving, putting the responsibility on them. It, the responsibility is on me. And I don't want people to feel like they have to say something if they, if they're coming from a different place on this, but I do, do agree. Like, I don't want to just make this about, okay, you get it. I think. And if you don't, I'm sorry, not as clear as I'd like to be. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to just stop there. Lillian. Well, I, I just want to give my perspective because I'm not white <laughs> for those who've met me and seen what I look like. And I came to the States at 11 years old. I'm now 50. So it is very interesting to me because I lived in many cultures. You know, I spent time in Israel. I spent time in, in Paris, France, and I went to school in the UK. And I, I guess I'm one of those people who are either mm, assimilate really well in whichever place I, I found myself. Of course, I've experienced racism, um, but I always want to understand why these people have such feelings towards me because of the color of my skin. You know, I, I just, so it's sort of, and I, I always felt out of like, I always try to connect with people on like a universal human level. Like, you know, if you prick me, do I not bleed? Don't you suffer stukas as much as I do? You know, we all lost things or loved ones. So um, I, I, I guess I just don't see myself as treated as a colored person. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? I'm not, I don't have that sensitivity because I don't have a strong sense of identifying myself as a minority female immigrant woman to this country. I'm just me. Like, I'm not even me, actually. I just, I just, I just relate mm -hmm. to people at their, yeah. at their level. And, and I've never really thought much about all the wrongs that's done against me. You know, I, I don't know. I, I just want to put in my perspective as a non- you know, predominant race person, just, I, not that I haven't had problems, but I look at it from like, like a different perspective. I tend to blend. I'm like Sedwig, you know, I just blend very well. I'm, it's good or bad, but that's, that's what I've done, you know, whichever culture I found myself, Asian or Western or whatever. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's been a trip being a Western, I mean, being a minority woman in this lifetime, I have to say, it's been really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to toss it out there and I get away with being blunt a lot because of who I am because a lot of people don't take me seriously especially at work but that's fine because um yeah I, I I I just want to give that perspective and share that with the group thank you Lillian I mean every human being is gonna have variations you know obviously and we got to take what we've got and do the best we can to wake up <laughs> and be as kind and humane along the way as we can. So I appreciate your perspective. And I, I think we totally need to be able to open wide and, and give room to all these different perspectives and experiences. Thank you. Lakshmi. 
Yeah, I would also like to share my perspective as a person of color. Um, I think um, racism is a subclass of oppression and we cannot really, that's just one identity marker by which people feel oppression. There are several other identity markers like identified gender or caste or whatever, right? And one perspective that has helped me is in some cases, I might be the victim, but in other cases, I might actually be the oppressor without even like knowing it. So kind of being mindful of my predisposed conditioning and my own cognitive biases towards a situation using mindfulness and, and the Dhamma as a mechanism to guide that, I think is probably one way um, I myself can get better at treating other fellow human beings with more fairness. Beautiful. I agree. Thank you, Lakshmi. Lynn? I know we're going over time here a little bit, but I want to give Lynn and Carolyn a chance to speak and then... Okay, uh, good morning, everyone. I just wanted to mention a movie that I'd seen over a couple of decades ago that seems just as relevant today for this conversation. And it's called The Color of Fear. Mm. Might be um, an opportunity to open this discussion at a different time. Okay. Yeah. All right, maybe a KBV movie night. Right. Thank you, Lynn. I wish we had well, a little more time to let all that sink in. But we're going to have to do that offline. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.